That's a great thing. We are transitioning to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom. We're going to be on Sundays in the book of Matthew for uh, the future ahead of us, as long as it takes. And today we're going to do an introduction to that book as we transition away from the Song of Solomon to the book of Matthew. So Matthew is the first New Testament book, and it is the Gospel of the Kingdom. We'll be digging that out as we go through the book. Today, we are going to do one verse, and then you can go home. (laughs) But actually, one verse at Living Truth will be the full amount of time, because we are going to be all over the Bible looking at the topic of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I would tell you this. If you can get this concept understood and lived out, it will be really transformative in your life. Because the Christian life is not about just saying a sinner's prayer and getting your uh, certificate to make it into heaven. The kingdom of God is much bigger than that. And I'm gonna give you several Ps that I'll kind of slow down and give them to you along the way. But we're called to pray it, pursue it, preach it. It's to be our priorities and even our purpose. All of this is related to the kingdom of God. And we're going to dig that out as we look at Matthew. We'll turn to the book of Luke and the book of Acts. I'll give you a few Old Testament scriptures. I just want to kind of whet your appetite in terms of this concept because we belong to a kingdom and we have a king who is reigning. And one day he will rule and reign from Jerusalem, but he wants us to be about his business. And we'll be talking about that. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for all the precious people who have come this morning, those who are joining us via live stream. We are grateful for each precious soul, each citizen of the kingdom, and even those who are potential citizens of the kingdom. We thank you. We want to have understanding as to what you would say. You are our Lord. And another way to say that is that you are our king. And we want to have kingdom priorities. So would you give us understanding as we open the word of God Show us who we are, what you've done for us, but also show us what we're to do with it. And we thank you for this time together. We pray that you'd move by the power of your Holy Spirit and be glorified in these moments that we have together. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. So we're doing an introduction to the book of Matthew. Matthew 1.1, if you open up there and look on with me, it reads this way. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, or the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, whenever you run into genealogies or genealogical lists in your Bible, most of us say, what is that? And how do you pronounce those names? And what is the purpose of these long lists of names in our Bible? Well, in the scriptures, genealogies were meant to give people the understanding of who had land rights and who could inherit the priesthood and the throne. So priests and kings came from certain lines within Israel. So if you were a priest, you came from the line of Levi. And if you were a king, you came from the line of Judah. And so this is why genealogies are really important. Now, we're not going to get into the rest of this this Sunday. That's for a future study. But the word genealogy, if you just look at the word, it has the root idea of genesis. So a genealogy is the genesis of a person. That is, where did they come from? What is their family line? 
Who are their ancestors? And Matthew, with the genealogy of Jesus, is going to establish where Jesus comes from on a human plane. And he is trying, Matthew is trying and will, establishing Jesus' credentials as the king. Most scholars believe that what you have in Matthew is a genealogy coming from Joseph, who's the adoptive father of Jesus, not his biological father. And then in Luke 3, you have the genealogy running through the line of Mary. So this couple that are the parents of Jesus, you have two genealogies. Matthew's is through Joseph. And notice that he says it's the book of the genealogy, the genesis of Jesus. Now, Jesus is his name. That name means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. The Hebrew form of the name is Yeshua. So Jesus' name was God saves or Yahweh saves, Yeshua. Christ, translated Messiah in some of the modern versions, is the anointed one. It is not his last name. It is his title. He is Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Christ. And Christ in Greek and Hebrew literally means the anointed one. So when Saul was going to be anointed as the first king over the nation of Israel, he was anointed with oil. David, a king after God's own heart, was anointed with oil. The anointed one is God's select vessel. And in this case, it points to his kingship. You could say Jesus, the Christ, or Jesus, the king. Jesus, who is Lord. When we tell people about the sinner's prayer in Romans 10, 9, it reads this way. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We confess Jesus not just as Savior, he is our Savior, but as our Lord. Lord is a synonym for king. His lordship over our lives is what we're getting to. So the genealogy, the genesis of Jesus is he's the Christ, the king, the anointed one. Notice how he walks this out now. He's the son of David. Now why is David important in the genealogy of Jesus? Because in 2 Samuel 7, if you're taking notes, verses 12 through 16, David was promised that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. That descendant is the greater son of David, Jesus the Christ. Jesus will sit on the throne of David forever. That is the fulfillment of that promise. So Jesus had to come from the line of David or the, the line of Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, Genesis 49 says. So this is a prophecy about the king. And Jesus will fulfill that prophecy when he sits on the throne of David, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem in what we know as the millennial kingdom or the future reign of Christ. He's the son of David as he establishes the credentials for his kingship. And he's the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of the nation. And Abraham was told in Genesis 12, through you, all the nations will be what? Blessed. So Jesus is the king. And the blessing of his kingship will come to all nations. He is the ruler of heaven and earth. 
He is over all the nations of the world. So right out of the gate in Matthew 1, verse 1, you have the kingly credentials. He's the Christ, the Lord, the King, the Son of David from the right uh, kingly line, the Son of Abraham, speaking of his blessing, which will move throughout all nations, including our nation, the United States of America, which has also been permeated and touched by the kingdom of God or the gospel of the kingdom. And so this is the beginning of the book of Matthew. And this was the priority of Jesus's preaching. The kingdom of God is mentioned in the book of Matthew almost 40 times with a variation, the kingdom of heaven. I'll I'll explain that in a moment. But the kingdom of God as a topic comes up over 150 times in the New Testament. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, or simply the kingdom. Now, 35 times in Matthew's gospel, he uses kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God. Some have made a lot out of this variation. There's not much to it. Let me explain it. This is what I believe is happening. Matthew's primary audience is Jewish, where Mark was written to more Gentiles in Rome, and Luke was written by a Gentile doctor to a Gentile audience. Matthew's target is a Jewish audience. And the Jews were very careful about the use of the name of God. They were very careful not to just frivolously over and over again mention God's name. They would say the name. Or they would even use heaven as a synonym for God. This is John 3.27. John the Baptist says these words. A man would have nothing unless it had first been given to him from heaven. Now, John doesn't mean that heaven gave him the stuff. He's not talking about the place. Heaven is a synonym for God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, from God. So Jews would sometimes use heaven or other expressions to be careful to not pronounce or overuse the name of God. And I believe that's simply what Matthew is doing. So we're going to see kingdom of heaven more than kingdom of God In Matthew, but in Luke, kingdom of God comes up some 30 different times and 150 different times in the New Testament. The point is this. The kingdom of God is a very huge and important subject, and we need to understand what it is. It was, in fact, the primary uh, message of Jesus. Take a look at Matthew 3. Look ahead just for a moment. John the Baptist says these words. He's preaching, and he says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. If you skip ahead to Matthew 4 and look at verse 17, Jesus begins to preach and it says, From that time, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this preaching of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was John's message. It was Jesus' message. And when they say repent, I think this is what they're saying. Turn to the king. Turn away from what you've been worshiping, whether it might be, you know, the emperor of Rome or your idols or your money or whatever your God may be, and turn to the true king, the kingdom of God and the king. Turn over to the book of Matthew. You got, I'm sorry, Luke. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at Luke chapter 4. Jesus' preaching prioritized the kingdom. It was his topic. Take a look at uh, Luke 4, 42. It reads this way. 
When day came, Jesus departed and went to a lonely place, Luke 4.42, and the multitudes were searching for him and came to him, tried to keep him from going away from them. That's what I would do as well. I would never want him to leave. And he said to them, I must preach, Luke 4.43, the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Notice in your Bible, a purpose statement, which, which is pretty rare in Scripture, was that Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God, and he had to preach it to different cities, and he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. If you turn to the book of Acts, which is a little bit to your right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the dead. Luke is also the author of the book of Acts, and Luke records post-resurrection appearances of the Lord and tells us what Jesus was up to in that 40 days after the resurrection when he appeared multiple times. Here's what it says. To these, Jesus presented himself alive, Acts 1-3, after his suffering, after the resurrection, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning, what's your Bible say? The kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom, if you turn back to Matthew chapter 4, is mentioned in Matthew 4.23, if you're taking notes, Matthew 9.35, Matthew 24.14, and Luke 16.16. 16. One more time, Matthew 4.23, 9.35, and Luke 16.16. 16. Let me give you the first one to look at together. Matthew 4.23 reads this way. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, where he did most of his earthly ministry, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, that's the title that we'll be using, the, the grand theme throughout this study of the book of Matthew. Notice, he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people, and news about him spread throughout all Syria. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, verse 23, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Flip over to Matthew 9. Look at verse 35. We're just going to see the places where the gospel of the kingdom is mentioned. Matthew 9, 35 and 36 reads this way. Jesus, Matthew 9, 35, was going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without the shepherd, without a shepherd. And then he prays, he tells them to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out more workers. Skip ahead to Matthew 24. This is the famous Olivet Discourse. Jesus preached this from the Mount of Olives. This is the famous section about the end times. Some believe the fall of Jerusalem and the end times. And here's what Matthew 24, 14 says. Jesus speaking. You've probably heard a lot of preaching about this lately because people have been talking about the end of the age and the end of the world. And here's what Jesus says. Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This, what your Bible say? Gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. 
Now, how important is that, brethren? That this is the topic that Jesus says must be preached throughout all the world before the end can come. I don't know if we've heard a sermon about that lately, but that is what Jesus said in Matthew 24, which will be a further in-depth study that we'll do together. And so we have this gospel of the kingdom. Let me give you a couple of words that will help us. First of all, gospel means good news, right? Or glad tidings. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion, and it simply just means that the glad tidings are the good news. What's the good news? Well, it's the gospel of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Let me give you a Greek word here that will help us as we move along. The, the word is basileia in Greek for kingdom. It's spelled B-A-S-I-L-E-I-A. Basileia. It's the concept of the ruler of a king, the king ruling a kingdom or a domain. It speaks of royalty and rule, this word for kingdom. And it's the concept of a monarchy. Now, when Jesus said kingdom to a first century Jewish audience, they would have no problem understanding what he meant. For Western ears, it's a little different. Why? Because what are we used to? A constitutional republic, we could say a democracy, and we have a part in the system. We vote, we elect leaders, we hope that our views will be represented by our representative leaders. That's kind of a Western form of government. But that's not how the ancient world operated. The ancient world knew kings who ruled over kingdoms. In fact, at the time that Jesus was on the earth, King Herod was ruling over that area and King Herod was threatened by King Jesus when the wise men came to worship him and said, where's the king of the Jews? And Herod was like, I'm the king of the Jews. And in Matthew chapter two, he tries to kill all the babies to eliminate a threat to his throne. Monarchs uh, were pretty much unaccountable rulers. They made their own laws. They could execute you on the spot if they wanted to. They had rule over their domain. In the Old Testament, we see Daniel, for example. Daniel uh, goes into Babylonian captivity, and the king of that time where Daniel first goes in captivity is Nebuchadnezzar, if you're a VeggieTale fan. Nebuchadnezzar, and he rules with an iron fist. And Daniel is uh, in the court of the king and influencing the king. And after Nebuchadnezzar came King Darius. And Darius was the king where we have the story of the lion's den. What happened? Well, some of his uh, you know, underlings tried to get this law out that he signed. Nobody can pray to any god except the king for 30 days. What did Daniel do? Went into his room, opened the windows toward Jerusalem, and prayed three times. Now, Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, and the Lord, the king, preserves him. And afterwards, when he gets out, if we can put the verse up on the screen, God delivers him. Darius wrote something. Here's what he wrote, Daniel 6.25. Darius the king wrote, just as Nebuchadnezzar wrote something to all the peoples, Nations, men of every language who are living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree, Daniel 6, 26, that in all the dominion of my kingdom, 
men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Colossians 1, 3, 13 and 14 reads this way. Jesus delivered us from the domain of darkness, Satan's domain, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When the Bible lays out the idea of light and darkness or kingdom realms, it says we basically have two kingdoms in this uh, world. We have the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. We have the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And when one receives Jesus as Lord, you are receiving him as your king. And thus, repentance means a change of allegiance. No longer do you serve the king of this world or the God of this world. You serve the greater king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The gospel of the kingdom is not simply about getting insurance for eternity. Uh, pray the sinner's prayer and pray it right now and pray it with sincerity and you'll go to heaven when you die. Okay, great, and you go on with your life. The gospel of the kingdom says when you receive Jesus as your Lord, all of your allegiances now shift and you now live for the glory of that king and the glory of that kingdom. I'm not sure that we've done the greatest job in our generation of preaching the fullness of the gospel. Many people have been told that basically just pray this prayer and you'll end up in heaven when you die, but there's been very little given about what you do until you die. What does the gospel of the kingdom mean for me now when I wake up on Monday morning? What does it mean for how I invest my time, my resources, my gifting, my treasure? What does it mean that I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God? Well, it really means everything. And this is why it is hugely important for all of us to understand what Jesus is saying. In Matthew's gospel, as I mentioned, this expression comes up some 40 different times. Let me give you some examples. They'll be familiar passages, but maybe they'll have a new shade of meaning for you. Look at Matthew 6, 10. This is the, known as the Lord's Prayer, and I would encourage you to follow along with me. Matthew 6, 9, it begins this way. Jesus teaching the disciples to pray. He says, Matthew 6, 9, pray then in this way. And all of you who have a Catholic background will want to say it because it's just ingrained. Our Father, who is in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your what? Kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when Jesus gave the Lord's prayer to the disciples as we know it, he said we are to pray the kingdom. We're to pray that the kingdom come. When I showed you the opening verses, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom then cannot be at hand if Jesus preached that 2,000 years ago and he was simply just talking about an entrance fee to uh, a kingdom in heaven somewhere. 
Jesus was talking about something bigger, something that encapsulates all of our lives. And he said, we're to pray the kingdom. Look at the second P I want to give you. We're to pursue the kingdom. Look at Matthew 6, 33. Jesus is telling us not to worry. That's what the world gets into. That's all they think about. But you seek first, Matthew 6, 33, his what? His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All the things that unbelievers worry about and get consumed by. You are, as a citizen of the kingdom, to seek first his kingdom. You're to pray it, pursue it. Flip over to Matthew 10. Look at verse 7. Matthew 10, verse 7. Jesus is sending out disciples to go and preach. Matthew 10, verse 7. He says, as you go, preach, saying, Matthew 10, 7, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. That's how people will know, at least one way they'll know, the kingdom is among them. Freely you have received, freely give. Three Ps if you're taking notes. We pray the kingdom, we pursue the kingdom, we preach the kingdom. And the kingdom was not necessarily the priority of those with whom it should have been. If you flip over to Luke 16, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Jesus had many confrontations with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They were supposed to be representatives of the kingdom, extending the kingdom to Jew and Gentile, welcoming people in. But they didn't do that. That's because their God was money. Luke 16, 14 reads this way. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things. And they were scoffing or ridiculing Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Luke 16, 15, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since then, the gospel of the kingdom, that's our big theme, of God is preached. And everyone is forcing or pressing his way into it. What does that mean? When Jesus arrived on the scene, he came to extend the kingdom. And he invited tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and lepers, all the unexpected people. And he said, come into the kingdom. And he said to the religious leadership, these people are going to get into the kingdom before you. They're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, and you won't be there. Do you know why? Because instead of being loyal to the king and the kingdom, you've made it about yourselves. You've made it about your money. You've made it about your prosperity and your position. And Jesus came and upset all that stuff, and they took offense at him. They didn't think these people even deserved to hear the gospel of the kingdom, but that's what Jesus preached. Flip over to the book of Acts chapter eight, just to bring this home a little bit more so you can see the theme running through the preaching of John, Jesus, and Philip and Paul. Acts eight, verse 12. Acts eight, verse 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Look at eight, 12. When they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, Acts eight, 12, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. The book of Acts tells us that the gospel of the kingdom was being preached. 
Check out Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul is addressing the leaders, the elders of the church at Ephesus. It's kind of a farewell uh, sermon to them, and here's what he says, Acts 20, 25. And now behold, Acts 20, 25, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, Acts 20, 25, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel or purpose of God. May I submit for your consideration that the kingdom of God is the whole purpose of God. Many of you who are familiar with the book of Acts and this particular verse, when you hear the whole purpose or counsel of God, you immediately think of the whole 66 books of the scriptures. And that's true. That is what we're to be faithful to. But in context, Paul said, I went about preaching the kingdom to you to reveal the whole purpose of God. Well, what is the whole purpose of God? Well, it's captured in the kingdom. To the last verses of the book of Acts, which is Acts 28, the very last verses of this incredible book read this way, Acts 28, 30 and 31. The apostle Paul in house arrest stayed two full years, Acts 28, 30, in his own rented quarters. He was welcoming all who came to him, Acts 28, 31. What was he preaching? The kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Some people say, some scholars have argued that Paul's gospel varied from Jesus's. Where Jesus was preaching the kingdom, Paul was teaching more uh, salvation by grace through faith or imputed righteousness. Paul did teach that in Galatians and Romans and a few other places. But the kingdom was still Paul's topic as well. In other words, Paul wasn't just saying, pray this prayer so you can secure your place in heaven and then go on with your life. Paul was preaching the kingdom and he lived the kingdom. This became his life that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King. And so we have already learned that we're to pray, we're to preach it, we're to pursue it. I would add that it even defines our destiny, our priorities. For example, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Various debates about what is the Sermon on the Mount really about? Oh, well, it does show you that you need grace. But the Sermon on the Mount is also about the principles of the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. There's application right now for today in the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus was preaching to the people, do you know that the primary form of address that he used was in parables? They have been called kingdom parables. And in Jesus's kingdom parables, he does something like this. He uses a contemporary illustration like farming or uh, uh, a king holding a wedding for his son and he says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God can be likened to a king holding a wedding for his son or it can be likened to a farmer who was casting seed or a net that went into the sea and was catching fish and he uses parables. A parable is a comparison. You lay aside a contemporary example like baking or farming 
and you laid aside a principle or a truth about the kingdom. Those were Jesus's kingdom parables. Look at Matthew 13, just for a second. I'm going to give you just one, actually a couple tastes of this. Matthew 13, Jesus told a famous parable called the parable of the sower or the soils. And he used the farming imagery. He said this parable was extremely important to understand the kingdom. And here's what he says. Matthew 13, 17. Truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, did not see it, to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, the one who represents the other kingdom, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. See, the preaching Jesus did was the word of the kingdom. And as the word of the kingdom went out, some people opened their hearts to the king and the kingdom and they entered in. And others closed off their hearts or they were hardened to the message and they stayed out. Jesus tells a parable in the book of Matthew Chapter 25, flip ahead just for a second for one other example of a parable. Matthew 25, 1. He says these words, Then the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, Matthew 25, 1, will be comparable. That's a good example of a parable. It'll be comparable. In fact, parables actually in the word. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, you know the rest of the parable. Five were wise, five were foolish. Five had oil, five did not. Five were, were prepared, five were not. And half of them got in and half of them did not. Why? They weren't ready for the king and the kingdom. And so this is the way it works as we study our Bibles and we look at this topic called the kingdom of God. And as I mentioned in the verses I just gave you, we're to pray it, we're to pursue it, and we're to preach it. Now, it would be good if this is that important in the Bible that we would know what the kingdom of God or heaven is. Amen? <laughs> How do we define what it is? Some believe it is making it to heaven after one dies. I don't think that that's the kingdom. Others believe it points to Christ's millennial kingdom. I think that both of those have a place, but it's not the full definition. It seems strange that John and Jesus would say the kingdom of heaven is at hand or that Jesus would instruct his disciples to preach the kingdom if the kingdom is only about going to heaven sometime in the future, 2,000 years removed from the preaching as we read it, or if it's even about a future millennial reign of Christ. So what is the kingdom of God? In Luke 17, when Jesus was doing miracles and preaching, he said to the religious leadership, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Earlier version says, it's within you. That's Luke 17, I think it's verse 21. And so some of the ancient commentators thought, well, that's what the kingdom means. It's, with, it's inside of you. So it's about having heaven's priorities in your soul or in your heart. That's part of the definition, but that's not all of it. 
Because the kingdom of God was in their midst, but it wasn't within the ones that Jesus was talking about. They rejected him. It is good to have your heart shaped by kingdom priorities, but that's not the full definition either. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is about the king's lordship. Steve Gregg comments, this is a very important section. He's written a book called The Empire of the Risen Sun about the kingdom of God. Steve Gregg, I'm quoting, there is a movement at the time of this writing which emphasizes the need for the Christian to manifest the kingdom of God in the present time through the performing of miraculous signs and wonders. This teaching is associated with the New Apostolic Reformation, NAR for short, movement, which emerged in the late 20th century and is currently attracting enormous numbers, especially of young believers. The main leader of this movement is Bill Johnson, pastor of Bethel Church in Redding, California, and he stated his view in this way. Kingdom culture, quoting Bill Johnson, is how heaven functions. And when we pray this prayer, on earth as it is in heaven, it's not just a prayer about eternity, it's actually a prayer for right now. It's God's intention right now to influence my circles of influence with a manifestation of his presence in such a way that mirrors heaven. So far, so good. That means there's no cancer there. There's not to be cancer here. So we pray for someone to be healed. When we pray for someone to be healed, we do it based on the example given us in that prayer. There's no disease there. There's not to be any here. Now, we should note, and I, and I say this with sadness in my heart, that Bill Johnson's wife died of cancer in July of this year. And I say that because it's a very important lesson. Let me walk it out. The lesson is this. Uh, extreme segments of the word faith movement and now the new apostolic reformation are teaching that when the kingdom comes... It's a guarantee of miraculous healing. Now, when Jesus was preaching in the Galilee region, he definitely healed a lot of people, and that got people's attention. Let me take you back to a scene in your mind. You, we don't have to turn there. John chapter 5, Jesus approaches the pool of Bethesda. He heals a man that's been laying there for many decades. Many people were sick around that pool. They had been lying there for a long time, waiting for the stirring of the water. You guys remember the text? But Jesus' focus was only on the one man. He did not heal everybody at the pool, nor did Jesus heal everybody he passed by or everybody he encountered. Jesus' healings were strategic and kingdom-directed. Yes, he did heal for compassion purposes as well, but my greater point is this. NAR, word faith teachers say healing is guaranteed in the atonement. And the fact is that our ultimate healing won't come until the resurrection and the rapture. Amen? At the second coming of Jesus Christ, that's when death will die. So you might say, well, then how do we make sense of this type of theology, which is extremely popular? It's categorized this way, and I'm going to give you a big phrase, but I think some of you have heard this before. It's categorized in a two-word phrase called overrealized eschatology. Let me give you a definition. Overrealized eschatology means that some people are preaching as if we have entered into the 
future reign of Christ when death and disease and everything has died in the resurrection. But we haven't. And I think it's very clear to everyone sitting in this room that we haven't yet achieved that place. And while people will preach it and say, basically, if you just have the right MO, they'll even say, don't pray that God's will be done. It's always his will to heal. But then when someone is sick with cancer or dies, we've even heard stories of word faith teachers, and I'm just saying this because I think it's important for you to understand. I'm not trying to bag on people. I think a lot of these people are probably sincere. But we've had word faith teachers in pulpits saying uh, healing is guaranteed right now, and they're hiding the fact that their wife is in the hospital with cancer, sick and fighting for her life. They can't tell the church that can't get the church to pray for her because then they would, they would be admitting that their theology is wrong. And half the time, the guys are standing at the pulpit wearing eyeglasses and toupees, which makes me ask the question, physician, heal thyself. If your theology is right, why are you standing up here with all the same issues? Look, I, I remember years ago, uh, some older saints that have now gone to be with the Lord used to wear T-shirts, one in particular I can think of. Uh, growing old is not for wimps. Have you seen that before? I am now realizing how true that T-shirt is. I wake up with aches and pains, and then I think, what did I do? I didn't even do anything. And my knees hurt, and my back is sore, and I'm like, oh, Lord, yeah, anyway. Now listen to this quote as Steve Gregg continues. He says, look, what these folks fail to realize is what many theologians refer to as an already not yet nature of the kingdom. Let me explain. We already have the promise. We already have the spirit guaranteeing our future but we've not yet realized all the implications of what Jesus did for us. We will in the resurrection. Our salvation is already, we have it, but not yet. The fullness of it is not yet fully realized. That's why over-realized eschatology is false. It puts people in a millennial reign or a future world without disease and death when we haven't realized it yet. He continues, to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven does not mean may there be uh, in this present world no cancer, no death, no marriage, no succession of day and night, no sea, no predatory animals, no unanswered questions, etc. just as these do not exist in heaven. In heaven there is no devil and there are no temptations. Yet these will remain in this world until Christ returns. In the present age, we are being tested and trained for the final eschatological state. In this reigning and testing phase, sickness, pain, temptation, sorrow, and many other unpleasant things, which will no longer exist when Jesus returns, play an important role. In this present age, such trials function as instruments of our testing, maturing, and training, I would even say to you, our longing for heaven. Now that's the end of the quote, but can you see how important this is to understand in your theology? 
The Apostle Paul, who did heal people when he prayed for them, or God healed them through the Apostle Paul, he left people sick in certain cities. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. He prayed three times, take it away, take it away, take it away. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, and I'm not taking it away. Many of you, I can look at your faces and know that you've prayed, take it away over something in your life probably more than three times. Take it away, take it away. And you might wonder, what's going on? Did I pray wrong? Do I not have enough faith? And let me just say to you, I think we should always pray. We should always trust the Lord. But when you have your theology wrong, then here's what usually the faith teachers say or people from this movement say, well, you lacked faith. That's why it didn't work. But that's just simply false. Did I tell you the story about the woman with the bad knees in this service? I didn't. Thank you. I'm still trying to recover from all the turkey that I ate and pie and cookies. So many years ago, I was at a church in Orange and we had a very precious sister in Christ who had um, some genetic issues with her knees. She had probably had about five or six knee surgeries. And so uh, a woman who had embraced some of this theology came up to this lady She was the wife of one of our elders and said to her, you know, you'd be healed if you just had enough faith and you wouldn't have to go through all these knee surgeries and stuff. So we ended up meeting with this woman who told our sister this and we confronted her and we said, you know, we don't think that's what the Bible teaches and that's false and it lacks compassion and we think it really lacks an understanding of what the Bible teaches. And you know what the lady did? She said, we weren't spiritual enough to understand and she left the church. But she really hurt this woman by embracing a theology that's just simply not biblical. I mean, 11 of the 12 apostles die martyrs' deaths. Many of the most committed righteous saints, I think of Spurgeon, who died in his 50s, had all kinds of uh, issues with kidneys and I think his liver. You get the point. We we don't have the guarantee that nothing's going to go wrong here. And I think we're all living examples of it. But we have hope that our king has conquered death and our king has risen from the dead. And one day, all of that will be behind us when we realize the fullness of our redemption. But not until then. Hallelujah. Yeah, amen. So we pray the kingdom. We pursue the kingdom. We preach the kingdom. The kingdom defines our priorities And we're trying to invite as many people as we can into the kingdom. We have a great commission. We have the parable of the sower. We have Jesus telling us about the principles of the kingdom all throughout his ministry. And so right now we're, you could say, we're doing some kingdom preparation. We're trying to invite as many people as we can into the kingdom. Let me show you, if you're still at Matthew 25... Uh, take a look at verse 34. Actually, we'll go back to verse 31. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, Matthew 25, 31, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations, Matthew 25, 32, will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another 
as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from the fa- for you from the foundation of the world. Praise God. He always had it in mind. The, here's the king and the kingdom. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. The righteous will say to the king, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Thirsty, give you something to drink. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Naked and clothe you. When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Let me just say that the kingdom of God is much bigger than a sinner's prayer and an entry fee paid for you into heaven. As important as that is, the kingdom of God is about your whole life. It's about a new allegiance It's about what you actually live for. It's about you on a Monday morning saying, Lord, you are my king and I serve your kingdom. Therefore, give me marching orders today. Lead me to someone who needs to hear about your kingdom. Help me give my resources to kingdom work, my uh, treasure, my time, my talents, my gifting to the king and the kingdom. It is not just simply a sinner's prayer. I said at a camp when I was 12, so I'm good. Or maybe when I get older and I sow my wild oats, then I'll think about getting right with God. That's not the kingdom. And I will say this to you. It's hard to live for the kingdom because we have kingdoms in conflict. In Matthew 4, we'll watch the king of this world, the God with a small g of this world, clash with the king who came, Matthew 4. And he'll say, all the kingdoms of the world, I'll give them to you. Just bow down and worship me. And our king will say, "Uh uh-uh because we only worship God alone. Kingdoms in conflict, light and darkness. So a definition. The kingdom of God has been defined as God's rule over God's people in God's place. And I think that's good. Let me give you my P's one more time because I think it'll help you. We're to pray it, pursue it, preach it, have its priorities for and let it define our purpose because it is our destiny. One more time, we're to pray it, pursue it, preach it, let it define our priorities and know that it's our purpose and our destiny. This is what it means to call Jesus Lord or King. As our benediction, we're gonna uh, turn to Matthew 28. I'm gonna read the Great Commission to you. The worship team's gonna play one more song for us. I want you to see this in light of Jesus's uh, kingship and kingdom. Matthew 28, the last verses of the Gospel of Matthew read this way. Jesus, and this is after the resurrection, came up and spoke to them. And he said, nobody talks like this, folks, unless they've completely lost it. And Jesus wasn't crazy, we know, right? He is the embodiment of truth, love, wisdom, everything we can talk about. Notice what he says. 
He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I have all authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them. This is kind of a picture of the entrance into the kingdom, baptism. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey all that the king has commanded. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Look at his authority. Look at the authority of our king. All of heaven, all of earth, all the nations, all that I commanded, and I'll be with you for all time. That is our king. And that is the gospel of the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for this introduction into the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Matthew. We have all enjoyed, many of us who have been believers for a long time, studies in in the Gospels like Mark and Luke and John. And we are in for such an amazing journey through Matthew. So much powerful stuff. And my prayer is that we'll always be keeping in mind the kingdom so that we can know, Lord, what you have for us. Because once we understand who we are and who we serve and what our priorities are to be, it changes everything. The world is looking for peace and purpose. And Lord, it's right here. We know who we are. We know who we serve. We know what our life's to be about. We know where we're going. And we know our, part, of, part of our job is to help others come into the kingdom, to extend the kingdom. Keep your head and heart bowed. If you're not sure that you know the king in this way, if you're not sure that you've ever made him Lord of your life, that's what he calls us to. Sometimes we, our knowledge of God and his word, it comes little by little. The light gets brighter and brighter. And my prayer for you is that you'd respond to the truth that you've heard. And if you haven't made Jesus the king of your life, That's what he wants to be and nothing less. Would you ask him in? You don't have to have a perfect prayer, but it needs to include repentance. That's what we've learned today. Turning away from the other kingdom, the false gods of this world and making Jesus your king. And once he becomes your king on the throne of your life, it changes everything. He gives you the power of the kingdom and the Holy Spirit. He gives you the priorities of the kingdom in his word. He gives you the purpose for your life. Ask him into your life. Repent of your sin. Trust in him. Maybe you need to come back to kingdom priorities. Maybe you'd say, Lord, I've been away and your kingdom has been the least priority in my life. I want to get that back. That'd be a great goal for the Christmas season in 2023. Father, thank you for the precious hearts of your people here. I've talked to so many of them and they're so hungry to know you and know what you have to say, know what your word teaches. And Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us because the king came down from his throne. And as we look at that baby in Bethlehem and the Advent season and we think about the kings of the east coming to worship you when you were just a little child.
We watch Herod try to destroy you. Father, we realize that the king left his royal throne to pay that ransom price for us. That's the good news. The glad tidings our God reigns. Isaiah 52, 7, our God reigns. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for defeating, paying the price for our sin, defeating death at the cross and through the resurrection. Thank you for securing the kingdom for us. We're so grateful. And I pray that you would refresh your saints, give us kingdom eyes in the month ahead as we try to invite people and seek to extend the kingdom. Help us to give as well. Thank you for the outreaches that are coming up. Pray that many would be touched and come into the kingdom and find hope and belonging and refuge, love, truth, all those beautiful things, Lord. I thank you and I ask in the King's name, Jesus Christ, all God's people said, amen. Would you stand for the last song?